welcome to the Theology Podcast, and uh, this is C.R. Wiley, and we are podcasting today from Flatbread Pizza <laughs> in South Windsor, Connecticut. And uh, I'm pleased to say one of our members has finally returned. <laughs> He's finally come back from some mysterious dark country <laughs> in the north. South Bend, Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have you back. Yeah. The uh, Vikings have back. let you uh, return, I see. Mm-hmm. They, they took you away and have released you, and yeah. now you're back. Yeah. <laughs> but I am growing the beard That's now right. The beard look is like looking a, very impressive. There. Yeah, uh, yeah, much more Viking-esque. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, why don't we introduce ourselves? And uh, as I said, I'm C.R. Wiley, and I'm the uh, senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester. I'm the author of The Household and the War for the Cosmos, and the soon-to-be-released... Uh, in the house of Tom Bombadil, I hope that's what it's going to be called. I hope that's that's what we what the uh, publisher will will call it, and I hope that's what the Tolkien estate will allow us to call. It. <laughs> anyway, anyway, and and we're actually going to be talking about to- a little Tolkien today, but I don't want to steal your thunder, Glenn. But uh, Tom, I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And now the mystery man. Yes, and I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of European history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. All right, all right. So, Glenn, what are we talking about today? It's your day. You've been away so long, you've got like several shows that, you, that we owe you. Accumulated. Okay, well, th- th- today I, I want to talk a little bit about some articles that have come up uh, recently uh, surrounding J.R.R. Tolkien. Woo-hoo. And uh, as a jumping off point, there's one from Glenn Arbery. He's uh, from Wyoming Catholic College. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he published a, a short piece that actually uh, came up in April of 2019, uh, in which he was talking about how all of his students at the college are really into Tolkien and Lewis. He says, this is good. Um, he says, um, as he puts it, the effect of Lewis and Tolkien on the imaginations of our students is undeniably good. Uh, both Lewis and Tolkien saw the effects of a secular world full of Nietzsche's all-too-comfortable last men, and they countered modern indifference to God and complacency with imaginary landscapes and actions that required the cardinal virtues, and more subtly, the theological ones as well, to oppose the great cosmic threats posed by satanic powers, uh, and so on. So he's he's talking about the fact that, you know, it, it, the, these are good because they bring you into a bigger world, a world of the, the numinous, mm-hmm. as he puts it. But he says, uh, there, there's a problem here. And although he doesn't use the word, uh, I would suggest that the best way of describing it is uh, he sees this as a bit escapist. Ah, the notorious E, yeah. escapist. Yeah. Now, like I said, he doesn't actually use the word, but what he says is, um, so if the, the effect is good, what worries me? I suppose I get more like Robert Frost in To Earthward the older I get. Frost writes that when he was young, he craved strong sweets, whereas, quote, now no joy but lacks salt. That is not dashed with pain and weariness and fault. The salt, I mean, is healthy but unsparing literary realism. Literature without recourse to fantasy. Literature in which talking trees do not come to the rescue. (laughs) Tolkien and Lewis both countered what Charles Taylor 
in a secular age calls the disenchanted cosmos, a topic we've talked about sure, before. Sure, sure. A world that has lost its belief in the numinous. But so did Dostoevsky and, Tol and Tolstoy, Vernon Austin Green, and so did Flannery O'Connor, Carolyn Gordon, and Walker Percy, and also in their different ways, Gustave Flaubert, Thomas Hardy, Joseph Conrad, James Joyce, and other great writers of our tradition, including Dickens and Herman Melville. Um, he continues, uh, I do not want our students to neglect the high imaginative perception it takes to render the lived world, as novelist Milan Kundera calls it, with a mimetic accuracy that intensifies the sense of reality instead of displacing it into an alternative cosmos. To my mind, this accuracy brings vividly before the mind the being of the real world and the particular act of existence. In other words, what he's saying is that you know, it's one thing to look for the numinous in an imaginary world. But there is a kind of reality in the real world which, described with literary um, skill, uh, brings you in touch with things that are larger and deeper and so on in our daily life. And he uses an example from Anna Karenina from Tolstoy uh, of a guy talking about his dog. And it's a you know, it's a very nice description and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, he ends up with, with this, these words. With the writer of genius, the real world yields up a texture of its small wonders. And it is in this real world that we find our good and evil, grace and despair. The worry, then, is that it might be tempting to escape to a self-evidently numinous world rather than to seek out the texture and wonder in this one. Uh, Perhaps I'm exaggerating a danger. Perhaps I think too quickly of those conventions where all the attendees dress up in Star Wars or Harry <laughs> Potter regalia. It is especially necessary to inhabit this real world imaginatively in a season of recollection and self-scrutiny like Lent. It is tempting to fantasize, tempting to think that we are better or worse than we are, or that the world is. Mm. Okay. So his argument here seems to be that the way that you find larger meaning is through intense realism in literature, literary realism, and that while there is a value in fantasy, it's limited, it's seriously limited, and he thinks it leaves you completely ungrounded uh, from the real world and foreseeing the world as it is in the numinous, in the here and now. Now, did, did he mention Marilyn Robinson in there, in her, his list? Uh, I don't think so. Because, um, you, know, you know, some of the things that she's done, like Gilead, for example, that's a, a, marvelous, a marvelous story. But uh, it does a little bit of what he's describing, but there's also a kind of uh, suffusion of the numinous at certain points in time in the story. You know. Right. Yeah, what, what I would say to him, the, the, the first thing that I would say, and, and we're, we're actually going to go to someone who's much smarter than me, it's C.S. Lewis. Um, smarter than all of us. Yeah, <laughs> um, combined. Um, the, 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 the first point that I would really want to make to counter him is that when you're looking at your really big, major philosophical questions, questions of metaphysics, what is the nature of reality, um, ultimate questions of ethics and moral authority and epistemology, all of those kinds of things. Right. 
the only place where you find those things front and center is in science fiction and fantasy. I agree. Because in literary realism, it's really, really hard to get to questions of ontology, Mm -hmm. or metaphysics or epistemology or, right. or ethics in the broadest sense of the world, the true nature of good and evil. How do you discuss that? Right. How, does, how, how, how would Tolstoy do that when he's discussing a dog coming up to a guy and him petting him? Right. And, and I think it's a very narrow conception of realism. I'm almost what, yeah, you know, what, yeah. what, you know, from a theological angle, it's a, you know, maybe a, a type of Christian naturalism that he's, he's positing. Um, that you know, and we see this a lot in, in sometimes in the Reformation emphasis on the ordinary. Yeah. yeah. Um, this this strong this worldly, um, in the sense that it's it uh, it has to do with with what we kind of experience directly yeah. in our everyday lives. And the, the, of course, they wanted to emphasize the sacredness of that, and so that's where we encounter God and and all yeah. of these things. So. I think where the problem sits is the, the, the kind of narrowing of realism. Right. And I think this is what I mean, even Christian Platonist tradition was trying to say, is, is similar to what scripture was trying to say, is the historical phenomena, the ordinary, um, is not what's basic and primary. Mm. It mm. isn't. Right, it, right. And the reason it right. isn't is because it isn't, first of all, self-constituting or self-defining. Whatever it is is determined by that which is causing it. See, we don't think causally anymore. Imaginative literature allows us to think causally in a, in, in a, in a way because it allows us to move beyond the historical level of phenomena, the ordinary, to see right. the extraordinary world that is actually the real one. Yeah, that's right. That, <laughs> that, that, that's the point, yeah. Yeah. This is something that lots of folks miss when they say, you know, when the term platonic is used, often it's used yeah. pejoratively. That's right. As though... You know, you're in a fantasy world yeah. when, in fact, what Plato is saying and the Platonic yeah. tradition is saying, no, that's the real The real. World. And actually, that's where Lewis goes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Lewis has a response. Uh, it, it, this uh, was posted recently, but it's, it's a repost of Lewis's review of The Lord of the Rings that came out within weeks of the original mm. release of The Return of the King. Mm. Nice. Okay. And there's a lot in here. You know, he talks about, you know, the critics complaining about moral simplicity and things like that. I'm not <laughs> going to go there. What I want to go to is, is his comment about realism. Okay. Uh, Lewis says that, um, you know, uh, he says, I will mention two general and totally different excellences in the book. One, surprisingly, is realism. Mm. So Lewis sees realism in The Lord of the Rings. This is what he says. Um, this war, the war that's described in the book, this war has the very quality of the war my generation knew. It is all here, the endless, unintelligible movement, the sinister quiet of the front when everything is now ready, the flying civilians, the lively, vivid friendships, the background of something like despair in the merry foreground, and such heaven-sent windfalls as a cache of choice tobacco salvaged from the ruin. <laughs> the author has told us elsewhere that his taste for fairy tale was wakened into maturity by active service. That, no doubt, is why we can say of his war scenes, quoting Gimli the Dwarf, there is good rock here. This country has tough bones. <laughs> and the excellence is that no individual, and no, the other excellence is that no individual and no species seems to exist only for the plot. All exist in their own right and would have been worth creating for their mere flavor, even if they had been irrelevant. 
Treebeard would have served any other author, if any other author could have conceived him, for a whole book. (laughs) So much for being saved by talking trees. But but this... The nature of the realism that that Lewis sees, he reads The Lord of the Rings and sees his lived experience. Yeah, mm-hmm. that right. is that is something that it, that the superficial note of realism. Well, it's a fantasy world. Right. Lewis is going to address that too. Right. The superficial note of realism misses that there is deep and profound realism in the psychological complexity of the characters, right. in the circumstances, in all of these different kinds of things. There is a kind of realism that we lose otherwise. Yeah, which, which kind of uh, raises in my mind the question, what, who is the first author who is, uh, what's his name again? He, um, in, uh, his name is, uh, actually it's another Glenn, um, <laughs> Glenn Abery. Abery. I think he's a uh, professor of literature. Got it, got it. Well, what sort of as I as I as I hear that, you know, his uh, his description of the problem, it strikes me as uh, kind of flat, in the sense that it doesn't doesn't give do justice to what we were just talking about. That we live in a in a world that is, you know, uh, ordered vertically, mm-hmm. and that right. that unseen things are eternal. And seen, the things that are seen are temporary, and I and as you were describe, you know, as you were reading this, this, and as Tom, as you were talking, what got, what, what occurred to me, and this is going to be a seem like a completely weird lateral move, but I, but it's not, liturgics, liturgy, you know, is an intensification or or a window, you could say, maybe that's a better way of putting it, into the real. Okay, one second. Yep. Hold that thought. <laughs> uh, I want to read a little more of Lewis here. Okay, okay, okay. But why, some ask, why, if you have a serious comment to make in the real life of men, must you make it by talking about a phantasmagoric never-never land of your own? Because, I take it, one of the main things the author wants to say is that the real life of men is of that mythical and heroic quality. Right, right. right. And he, he goes on to say... By putting bread, gold, horse, apple, or the very roads into myth, we do not retreat from reality, we rediscover it. As long as the story lingers in our mind, the real things are more themselves. This book applies the treatment not only to bread or apple, but to good and evil, Hmm. to our endless perils, our anguishes, and our joys. By dipping them in myth, we see them more clearly. I do not think he could have done done it any other way. And this brings us to liturgics. Mm -hmm. It also brings us to sacrament. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Because in sacrament, my thought went to sacrament first, but it it connects directly to liturgy, too. In sacrament, what do you have? You have water. What is more common than water? What is a more common act Mm -hmm. than washing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But baptism Mm -hmm. is something different. Bread and wine, the things mm-hmm. that were the commonplaces the of the meals, of life, the staples right. of life, mm-hmm. that suddenly mm-hmm. becomes something bigger. Mm-hmm. And it, it points to beyond itself to something greater. So in a very real sense, the sacraments are doing exactly what Tolkien is talking, or Lewis is talking about Tolkien doing here. Yeah, yeah. And in a sense, that makes the story sacramental. Yeah, oh, I agree. And yeah. liturgical, as you enter into this larger, bigger reality. And that right. makes the other Glens um, 
naturalism almost sound like a Baptist view of sacraments. Anyway, that was no, just no, a joke. No. That was a joke. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> particularly so psychology. That was your outside <laughs> voice. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, you know, I, I think, though, it, it would, what, it, what it causes me to do is, is wonder whether or not there may be some sinister spell that has come over the guy. Yeah. No, and I, I don't have, I'm having a little fun here. Yeah. But... Like when I think about naturalism, you know, what do you think about? You think about people like Jack London, you know, yeah. and and what you have there is a sort of just a sort of a bleak world of you know survival mm -hmm. and eventually death. Death. When I think of literary naturalism, that's what comes to mind. Yeah. You know, sort of bleakness. Yeah. So now maybe maybe what he's arguing uh, or he's he's longing for is something kind of in between something between Jack London and Tolkien. You know, maybe that's what he's asking yeah. for. Well, and, and, and being fair, like I said, he acknowledges up front that there's a lot of value sure. in Tolkien and Lewis. It's sure. not like he's dismissing them completely. And, and I think he has a valid point of figures like Dostoevsky and, and other thinkers like this that, that express these things in different literary forms and still were communicate some of the profundities that that and complexities that arise when grace and and, uh, and you know, created life. But I have to wonder if there's some also, there's some classism in play here, mm -hmm. to use one of the favorite terms of our <laughs> leftist friends. Because Tolkien and Lewis are accessible to just about everybody, whereas Dostoevsky is not. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a refined palette, literary palette, who can appreciate his work. You know, I think it's... Uh, or now, someone who doesn't have to work so they can actually read it and get <laughs> through it. It's very, very... But you, but you see what I'm getting at. Like Tolstoy, too. Like, I would never give anything by Tolstoy or Dostoevsky to, to most of my people in my church. Yeah. Not that those aren't good works, mm -hmm. but just be, that they're, they're difficult. They're challenging. Yeah. And many of my people would find them off-putting and discouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I could give them The Hobbit mm -hmm. or you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, knowing that there's tremendous depth, but yeah. there's also accessibility at a very, you yeah. know, you know, uh, high level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there are other reasons as well that we can point to. Um, they're hierarchical. Yes. That is going to make them unpopular yeah. um, in current literary circles. And along with that, I think that to some extent, maybe what he's reacting to is what he is, you know, I... I he doesn't say this, but I sort of get almost get the sense that there's a leveling out in his mind between, you know, the Lord of the Rings and a lot of uh, the equivalent of pulp sci-fi today, right. where there are so many things that are derivative from the Lord of the Rings, and they're just they're basically action fantasies, and there's really no or very little substantive reflection right. on reality or, or anything like that, the things you see in Tolkien and Lewis. Yeah. I wonder if he isn't on, on some level seeing this, you know, the, the more purely escapist kind of stuff as being more of a problem, but that gets tied in inevitably to Tolkien and Lewis. But maybe, maybe some of his students are nerds. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. You, know what I'm, you know what I'm getting at? As, but the thing about nerds is that they're going to, if it's not that Fantasy. If it's not told, it's not. It, they're never going. Nerds don't read realist fiction, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, literary fiction. You know, uh, what's what's interesting. You know, a couple of things that come to my mind. You know, as I think about 
this particular thing is I've, I've just finished reading uh, Mikhail Hulebeck's uh, book mm-hmm. on Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft, Against the World, Against Life. Mm-hmm. And in that book, Hulebeck, who is, you know, one of Fran- you know, France's greatest literary and most celebrated authors, uh, he's to completely dismissive of literary realism. He praises Lovecraft of all people. Hmm. <laughs> now, when you think about Lovecraft, I mean, <laughs> that I, I, I lived in France for a while. I know French academic life. That just my mind just blew. Oh, you, you, you got to read. You got to read that book against against uh, the world against life, uh, because uh, in that book he just says, you know, essentially. It's a it's a it's a letter of gratitude to Lovecraft by one of the most celebrated authors in France of all places, say. And then in that book, he's just dismissive and contemptuous for the thin gruel of literary realism. Hmm. Oh, absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Actually, I, I can understand. On, on some level, I can sort of understand how that could come out of France. Um, well, they did like Jerry Lewis. Well, no, no, but but but. But there, there is, well, think about the existentialists. I mean, yes. and, and talk know, about the, bleak, bleak d- despair, yeah. um, uh, actually getting what happens when you have a universe without God, right? You know, so yeah, yeah all right, I, I guess I can see that, but that, that still was a bit of a surprise, I mean, yeah. but, right? But nothing surprised me um, or amazed me more than when I actually was in France and went into McDonald's, their McDonald's, and saw a tap for beer. So that's. <laughs> We need that in America. (laughs) We need that. (laughs) Well, as long as it's Belgian beer, French beer, not so much. You're right. Right. Um, A a little point, um, you know, and this comes uh, kind of some of the philosophical thinking going on here, and there was always a little tension in the kind of realism versus realism and idealism debate in philosophy. And so some would take the more Aristotelian line that would say, of course, that the, you know, the particulars, the ordinary worlds would be the world in which the spiritual, of course, would be, uh, would, would manifest itself. So, I mean, it, he, he could, I, I haven't read all of that very carefully, but I mean, he could be trying to, um, maybe he's not so, so much of a fan of, of the, the Christian Platonism that, right. that he sees more, more alive in, in figures like Lewis or Tolkien. And so he he's kind of making this little move back to a more. Well, I got a question about that. Would would you say that Tolkien is Platonic? Now I know there's an argument that Aristotle's a Platonist, but I would I'd see that that's the train I would go in. I would say I, I'm someone who would find you know um, you know there's even a Gerson has a recent book out called the uh, Aristotle and Other Platonists. Right. Um, I think he is a, he is definitely in the Platonic tradition and right, and. Right. Um, Oh, as his teacher, I mean. That's right. And, and there is just, he's sort of refining certain areas and, and taking certain things as own direction. Um, but what happens in the, as Aristotle kind of gets um, reconfigured in the Christian world, is you do have the, the, the kind of, the Tolkien kind of uh, side that would still have a kind of, what I would say, uh, a, you know, a Neop- Neoplatonist, Aristotelian kind of vision. Which is typically just another way of saying a sacramental vision. They right. hold those things that, that, that the, Christian, uh, the, the Christian liturgy um, posits. Um, but then you have this kind of, this, this kind of what, neo-Thomism as it go, goes. And right. this is something that kind of overemphasizes the natural world as right. its own pure nature, as we've talked right. about before. Creation, 
kind of being um, sort of its own realm and its own secular, if you will. Right. And so there tends to be a certain kind of definition of, of some people that that is, that is the place. And a lot of the, the Protestant world absorbed this kind of stuff. Yeah. That is the place of history, that's his, historical yes. um, manifestation of God is in, in history the way it comes to you as you drive home today from work. I mean, that kind but of... But isn't that interesting because there's kind of a two-sided phenomenon going here because yeah. many of the Protestants that we know, the sort of Antillian tradition, is they're, they're reacting to the neo-Thomanism. That's right. They're not actually reacting to Thomism. That's right. And strangely, a lot, you know, a lot of the ones that don't kind of run more in a liturgical, sacramental direction end up absorbing all the stuff that they rejected in neo-Thomism. Right. But um, the, that in their minds, yeah. neo-Thomism is Thomism. That's right. That's Pure right. nature, all that kind Pure of stuff. Pure nature. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, from a from the standpoint of sort of classical theism is yeah. is crazy. That's right. That's you know? right. That's right. Yeah. One of the things that I I've uh, started doing uh, when I'm talking to people about worldview and particularly metaphysics, the nature of reality, is using um, the creedal categories of uh, all things visible and invisible. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So the question that I like to ask people is, what is the relationship between the visible and the invisible? Right. Do it as a Venn diagram. What does it look like? Mm. Are they two one circles one one that are? Are they two circles that are separate? Are they two circles that are touching? Are they overlapping? If they're overlapping, how much? Or is one inside the other? Right, and, right. And the answer of classical Christianity is they're causally related as cause and effect. That's right. So the unseen is the cause of the of scene. The scene. Yeah. And therefore the deter fundamental determiner of what the scene is and is for. You know, what's funny is that many of the literalists that I know talk about equal ultimacy as though God created the unseen and the unseen in, unre in an unrelated way yeah. that these things are kind of parallel worlds mm -hmm. like you see in science fiction yeah. <laughs> and they don't have any causal relationship at all yeah or you can just forget causation, just look at what belongs in them. Let's separate God out of it, because we're talking about all things created. Right. Um, so uh, what, what is the relationship between the seen and the unseen? How do angels interact with the world? How do demons interact with the world? Right. Or all of these other things that are in the unseen, stuff like meaning. Yes, right. How does that interact with the physical world? You know, all of these right. kinds of things. What, what is the relationship? Yeah. Um, and that, it seems to me, is, is a reasonable way of getting at some of these kinds of questions about, um, about uh, Aristotle or Plato or realism or idealism yeah. or whatever. You, just helping people to think it through that way. Well, that's right. And, and if the terms Plato and Aristotle seemed like it's, it's sort of a, a submission to a, a philosophical framework um, that they're not understanding how it's functioning. Those things are just terms that talk about the way in which these particular thinkers emphasize certain things in their thought. But the church had in its own theology this, these ideas, these terms going on, visible, invisible, um, God is the primary cause of all things. What is create? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. All things were made through Christ. There was nothing made that is not made through Him. You're talking, you're talking relationship of causality, creator, creating, um, and, you're, and then visible, invisible, before all things, 
you know, um, in then in time and space. And so those terms of Plato and Aristotle are just ways of putting the emphasis, um, whether it is on the invisible yep. and the unseen um, or, and, and the principle, or you put it on something else. And that's what that whole debate's about. So in a way, it's, they're just philosophical tools we use to express what we know from what scripture is putting or, forth. Another way that is of thinking about it or describing it that's been helpful to me, we don't have any problem when it comes to, you know, the say for example, using the the insights that have that we've uh, been able to uh, enjoy through the scientific method mm -hmm. when we think about the natural world. Mm -hmm. Well, what we have with philosophy often is, is, is something similar. There have been some real discoveries. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's not just, and this is what I run up against sometimes, is, is this idea that, is that the Platonists were just making it up. Mm -hmm. yeah. They didn't actually discover anything in, this, in the same way that a scientist would discover, <laughs> say, you know, the law of gravity. Yeah. But if we think about it, <clears throat> Uh, you know, in the framework that I'm that I'm talking about now, what we what we're you know what we what I think the fathers, the church fathers, said is that surprisingly these guys had some things right, and for them, yeah, it was figuring out why. Yeah, you know they they were they were puzzled. You know, and we talked about this I think a few episodes back. There must have been some influence of the Hebraic tradition. Yeah. There, the church father said there must have been something. Well, he said Moses. You Moses, know, they, yeah. They ran into, Plato ran into Moses, right? Right, yeah. right. <laughs> something like that. Because they were trying to figure out how did these guys get it right when everybody else, you know, when you think about yeah. sort of the world in which, you know, the, the early, you know, the apostles, for example, what they, what they went out into, there's this sort of, you know, world in which, you know, you've got mythological, you know, you've got mythologies, uh, and you have no philosophy, really, mm -hmm. to speak, speak of, except in this one place. <laughs> and, and then what, what happens in that one place, Greece, is something that is just like, you know, so tremendously fecund, you know, it has this, this I think I'm good for now. Yep. Right. You guys want to do any dessert on today? Or? I'm good. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to eat all this so you don't need to take it. <laughs> so, the, uh, what you have is this sort of exceptionalism. What's going on in this place? They, they, they made some real discoveries. Yeah. Yeah. And the fathers were able to sort of identify the gaps in what they That's discovered. Right. They were saying, you know, they don't have the incarnation, they don't have the resurrection. Those yeah. are huge. Yeah. They but, don't have... Um, Contingent creation. That's right. They've got eternal universe. That's right. That's right. Proper view of transcendence. Those yeah. were all. So they got a number of things wrong, but what puzzled them was not what was wrong. What puzzled them is what they had right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, what what's interesting to to take this back to the whole sacramental idea. Right. What's interesting to me is that what we're seeing, you know, when when we talk about. Um, well, all right. <laughs> when we talk about the rejection of pure nature, right. the people who are adamantly against that tend to be what the Reformation would call sacramentarians, yeah. Yeah. which is to say, 
that all that is happening in the sacrament is pure nature. Mm, yeah. There isn't a transcendent. Thinking of Zwingli, you mean? Yeah. Well, it, it, Zwingli didn't actually believe that, but people think he did. Okay. But Zwingli is a bit more complicated than most people think he is. But yeah. but be that as it may, you know, th this idea that that you get in churches that that these are not sacraments, they're ordinances, which is something that's ordained by God that he just tells us to do for no apparent reason. Right, right. right. Yeah, you, just, uh, you just do it. You just do it. Right. <laughs> and there is no greater significance to it other than raising our glass to our departed leader. That's <laughs> right, right, yeah. right, right, right. Um, that is a pure nature argument. Uh, that is. bread and wine and water cannot convey grace because grace is something that is outside of the material world, therefore it cannot be in any way attached to material objects. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's what Nancy Piercy calls uh, the fact-value distinction. Actually, yeah, a lot right. of people use that term. But we've, we've got this idea of the fact-value distinction that says that you cannot have transcendent and a finite together. And, and go ahead. Uh, Which, by the way, also shoots the incarnation right out the window. Right, right. And, and, it, and it also shoots out the, the, the world of biblical meaning. Um, because, for example, what you have going on in Scripture is very fascinating. Let's take the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, for instance. Um, something that, uh, that you easily, usually find in, in strangely divided camps in the Protestant world. of The, the whole completely enchanted world of charisma. <laughs> the charismatic. <laughs> rec reckless, recklessly, uh, <laughs> recklessly detached from uh, other types of realism. And then the other um, almost deistic world of, of, of a lot of the rest of Christianity. But let's just take the idea of the Holy Spirit as Scripture presents it early on. Um, a lot of the old... Well, here, here, is, here is kind of one thing to keep in place as uh, Christian layers. God is not to be associated in himself with anything creaturely that's idolatry, right? right. God is not a creature. Um, you, that's what you know, brings about the whole issue and is not to be related to as a creature. Um, but one of the first things we see is God's being identified in his revelation with his works in creation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's always over qualified by him not being the creation. So he is willing to be identified by thing, his works of creation, but he is not to be identified as the exact thing. For example, he will be identified with wind, ruach. Right, the spirit right. hovers over the waters, and this whole concept of wind is developed over and over again throughout the Old Testament into the New becomes where we associate with Numa. Um, the wind blows where it will, you right. don't know, but so was everyone born of God. So wind, okay, is its primary significance that which is blowing trees and that's the most determinative reality? Or is its primary significance its place within the economy of God's self-revelation and, of course, his, his manifestation. In other words, yes, wind is a natural phenomenon, but that natural phenomenon teaches us something. Yeah, right. So here's well, your ordinary, but there's your extraordinary. Yeah, when I think about what Jesus said, is you don't mm -hmm. know where it's coming from, you don't know where it's, where it's going. going. Yeah. And, and so here's, a fit, here's an, something that's unseen that has yeah. physical manifestations. And this is exactly what I think we're, we're trying to talk about. This is what I think Tolkien is up to. They're trying to talk about the, this ways of these interrelations, but in a more imaginative way, so we can do more than just merely 
talk about this as a phenomenon there because we're, we're meant to, in, in the old Christian traditions, we're meant to contemplate from the phenomena to the eternal significance, meaning, and purpose. We're to move, it's a stepping stone. Yeah, now th this brings up a comment by Christopher Tolkien, hmm. um, uh, he who is giving up control of the Tolkien estate, I suspect. <laughs> but he said that after The Hobbit came out, he would never allow another film to be made from anything that Tolkien ever wrote. Hmm. Now I think next generation may be thinking differently on hmm. that. But he said, that the, the, the reason was, he said, They've turned it into nothing more than an adventure story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, in, in other words, what he saw Peter Jackson doing, I think in The Lord of the Rings and especially in The Hobbit, is basically gutting the story of its real significance. Just turning it into a simple action-adventure story, which yeah. it is more than that. Yeah, yeah I don't think that, that Jackson gets it at all. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I really don't think he has it. And I... And why should we be surprised? Yeah. I mean, the guy it doesn't share the faith of Tolkien, mm -hmm. and he would, and, and even the, the, yeah, the, even just the philosophical, theological astuteness you would need to be able to, right. to do that. I mean, I know some artists have that capacity, and um, and maybe he does. It's, he just wasn't attuned to it. I, I don't know. But here's an interesting thing from Tolkien. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. You well, the, you know, just the reason why I brought that up is mm -hmm. again, it's it. It's this. I think it's the same sort of thing that the, that Glenn, whatever Aberly, whatever his name is, um, Aber, Arbery. Well, whatever. Uh, I think it's the same thing that he was talking about on on some level. In that people get the adventure, the sort of romance, all of these yeah. kinds of things. Hmm. And he does acknowledge that there's there's the noumenal in that. Yeah. But. For Jackson, it's an adventure story. It's a cool adventure story set in a cool place with cool right. history yeah. and cool stuff. Right. Yeah, and, and, I, and I know it frustrates us that people can't get beyond the surface. But 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 but, but, but what else is new? Mm -hmm. yeah. sure. We live in a world where people don't get beyond the surface most well, of the time. But we have this happening in theology. Um, what has happened is just like it's happening with in relation, say, to Tolkien's literature, Lewis. We have it happening with scripture. Um, what has happened in, the, in, in, in evangelical academic theology is the this worldly historical phenomena has predominated. Yes. Um, we have moved from what the reformers thought the grammatical historical level is to adopting what basically the the higher critics viewed historical grammatical, and we have entered this this realm of, of natural causality. I asked my class the other night. I'm, I'm teaching on systematic theology three, and I asked them, when you study um, New Testament here, what is the first thing your professors always teach you about that biblical text? If you're going to understand it, you need to understand it in what? First thing, everyone, context. Yeah. And I said, what do they mean by context? And they were cultural, literary, yes. grammatical. I said, well, wh where's the theological context? Yes. What is the metaphysic driving that? Because that, the historical phenomena is not the, that's the whole point of the whole scripture. The physical is not, the, Jesus said, you want to understand my mission, understand from where I am and to where I'm going. Yes, right. And so right. It's, it's, the, it's a principle in causality um, and, and what I mean by that, it's that from which, the ultimate reality from which everything is from, is the final meaning and determination of everything that comes from it. Yeah. And that's what these people are onto. And then, uh, real quick switch gears, ring wraiths in Tolkien. 
um, you have a masterful way in that that particular um, character of trying to bring some kind of concretion to to the fact of evil. Mm. And what is evil? Evil doesn't have an ontological reality apart from that which is. And so that's what you have in this kind of character. Mm. Something that isn't fully there. And how are you going to properly and realistically articulate evil in terms of its personal dimensions apart from something like that in the most realist sense? Right, right. Um, the fact that you bump up into somebody um, who does a heinous act to you at the stoplight in, in, in hyper-literalist literature. Well, that's just going to be reduced to psychology yes. or some other thing. It is not going to be tied to the, this actual... That, that, that's really interesting. Because, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm big on the Augustinian uh, private nature of evil. Yes. So, but I, I never considered that the implications of that with the ring rates. Yes, that's, that's, that's really what's going interesting. on there. Yeah. Yeah. Quick note on evil. This yes. is, again, from Lewis. Um, Sauron is eternal. The war, well, not exactly, but <laughs> this is what he says. Sauron yes. is eternal. The War of the Ring is only one of a thousand wars against them. Every time we win, we shall know that our victory is impermanent. If we insist on asking for the moral of the story, that is its moral. A recall from facile optimism and wailing pessimism alike to that hard yet not quite desperate insight into man's unchanging predicament by which heroic ages have lived. Hmm. Hmm. So, again, bringing in this issue of, of evil and its omnipresence in our world that you can never have a final victory over it. Right. Tolkien at one point talks about fighting the long defeat. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that term. Yeah. Yeah. It's depressing, but at the same time, very uh, uh, true. And it's, it's also very heroic yes. in the old... North sense. Yeah, right. north sense of the word. Right. Actually, Chinese, too. Okay. In chi Chinese movies, uh, the, the hero tends to die. <laughs> and, and the reason hmm. is because if you can win a fight, you're not heroic. You are heroic when you keep fighting and you know you're going to lose. Which is why Harry Potter should have died. <laughs> well, uh, arguably he did, but that's a whole different uh, That's a whole different. That's another issue. episode. Um, now, um, so I, th th just the evil thing was, I, I wanted yeah. to get that quote from no, Lewis. A it's a fascinating, I, I think that's a very fascinating point. Um, one, one more thing, uh, I know we're, we're getting close to the end, but there's one more article I brought along that I thought was really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, this it was from National Review um, of January 8th of this year. Wow. All right. So this one is a recent Fresh one. off the press. And uh, this <laughs> is uh, Joe Laconte, who is a professor of history at King's College. He talks about, um, for its 1937-38 to 38 Christmas lectures for children, the Natural History Society of Oxfordshire announced a forth forthcoming talks on coral reefs, birds, whales, horses, and dragons. <laughs> the latter topic was taken up by J.R.R. Tolkien, a professor of English literature, what I, now what I want who to know just is, published The Hobbit. What I want to know is, what was the attendance at each of those lectures? Yeah, My that, guess is that dragons would just packed out the room. Uh, yeah. Uh, probably. <laughs> but Tolkien's lecture before an audience packed with children of all ages tackled a decidedly adult subject. The problem of evil in the world and the heroism required to combat it. Yeah. Tolkien began disarmingly with a slideshow of prehistoric reptiles, including a pteranodon in flight, to remind his listeners that, quote, science also fills this past with dreadful monsters. 
many of the largest and most horrible being of a distinctly lizard-like or draconish kind. These ancient creatures, he said, embodied legendary qualities found in dragon mythology. The dragons with whom he had an acquaintance, quote, loved to possess beautiful things. Greed and hatred motivated them, quote, and how can you withstand a dragon's flame and his venom and his terrible will and malice and his great strength? It probably was not lost on the children present that Tolkien's mythological dragons sounded a lot like people who inhabited the real world. Mm. Okay, this is just before World War II, the rise of the Nazis. Mm. Uh, but uh, j jumping ahead, Tolkien's analysis went deeper still. Drawing on the epic English poem Beowulf, he said that the English people had a special insight into the moral significance of dragons. Mm. In the poem, Beowulf defeats the demon Grendel, Grendel's mother, and a fearsome dragon but at the cost of his own life. Mm. Tolkien was fascinated by such tales with their portrayal of the persistence of wickedness, the danger of pride, and the value of heroic sacrifice for a noble cause. Quote, one might say that the chief morals that such stories teach, or rather awaken one's mind, are all shining in this story, he told his audience. Mm -hmm. Just a couple of other quotes. Tolkien said, uh, the darkness of the present day has had some effect on it. So he's talking about uh, uh, the development of the, store of the Lord of the Rings. In the perpetual fight against dragons, Tolkien suggested modern weapons would not be decisive. Something else was required. Quote, dragons can only be defeated by brave men, usually alone, he mm, said. Mm. Sometimes a faithful friend may help, but it's rare. Friends have a way of deserting you when a dragon comes. Wow. Tolkien disliked allegory. The truth is that the catastrophic rise of fascism and communism merely confirmed his insights into the human condition. The nearly irresistible appeal to demagogue, the schemes for a utopian future, the insatiable will to power. Quote, for the dragon bears witness to the power and danger and malice that men find in the world, he said. And he bears witness also to the wit and courage and finally to the luck or grace that men have shown in their adventures. Not all men but only a few men greatly. However dark the modern world may appear, Tolkien could never give up the older concepts of virtue, valor, duty, sacrifice, and grace. As he told his audience, dragons are the final test of heroes. Hmm. If Tolkien is right, then what does that say about us? Yeah, yeah. The lust to possess and subjugate is as strong and widespread as ever. Dragons continue to roam the earth. We seem to have a terribly difficult time, however, finding authentic heroes to fight them. Yeah, yeah. But two things come to mind very quick. One is the valorization of dragons recently within fantasy literature. Uh, dragons are like, you know, my friend the dragon. You yeah. probably saw yeah. that film. I can't remember the name of the name of it, but it's essentially that my pet dragon. Yeah. It means all this sort of like Pete the Friendly Dragon and, yeah. Yeah. and all this P Puff the Magic. Oh, that's, it, that's, it, that's what I was getting at. Puff the Magic. I think, I think all I'm this stuff is sort of like trip. That's right. <laughs> dragons have kind of gone on a, a sort of like, uh, and a, there's been a, a group of people who want to make the case for the dragon. Yeah, how to tame your dragon is the films yeah. I think you were thinking that's of. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And, and, and you know the idea is that you know if we could just understand the dragon, okay. it, we're good. We're good. I'm all set. All set. Yeah, we're off. Uh, the uh, you know, if we just understood dragons better, you know, we'd all love them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, or it's it's the environment. That's dragons right. are only nasty because that's of the right. difficult conditions that they that's find. Right. Or because people don't like them, and that's why. If we just liked them, they'd be cuddly. That's right. That's right. The other thing is the eastern view of the dragon. 
you know, the dragon is kind of the lucky and wise serpent type figure. Yeah, much, much more complicated in the East, but yeah. Yeah, but I guess the contrast, though, mm -hmm. that's the main thing I'm thinking about is, is sort of this contempor contemporaneous sort of valorization of the dragon and then the, the different take on the dragon in the East. Yeah. Those are just a couple of things that come and to mind. You also have sort of the, the biblical imagery, yeah. revelatory, the dragon, the beast. I mean, you have these these kind of figures, Leviathan. Mm -hmm. right. You know, the, the, this kind of um, these ways again of of talking about things in the most real sense. That, that exactly. And and I think that's that's what happens. I, I remember a, a class I took years ago. It was a metaphor. Uh, uh, what was it? Under, it was under Nicholas Lash from Cambridge. It was. Um, uh, language metaphor, metaphor analogy in the naming of God. Mm. And uh, that was one of the things that was actually we were talking about is the way in which, um, the way in which metaphor and analogy were in the sense the most realist ways of talking about things. Because mm. there, on one hand there's a, there, there is a actually limiting, we, we often think as metaphors expanding, bringing into something um, you know, something extra, therefore beyond reality. Right, and he said it's right. exactly the opposite way around. There is a limiting going on, which is cutting off those aspects that aren't real, in a sense. Right, right. Um, and, and the way we talk about those things, I mean, we use things, of course, you know, we talk about running water, for example. Right. We use that literally, the water's running, but it's not like physically walking and running, right? I mean, this language is all around us in, right. in different things, but there isn't a better way of speaking to the, the, the reality that we counter in the ordinary than talking about water running, <laughs> right. moving and doing all these things. Right. And so language is already a complicated matter anyway. To think that we have some kind of um, direct correspondence um, going on here. But um, that, isn't, that the, isn't that what sort of is like the kind of the core of realism? Yeah. Literary realism. In other yeah. words, it's it's you know the, the this, you know the idea that we need to get more realistic. Yeah, is a way of sort of sneaking materialism in the door. I think that you yeah. know, you know. You're right in one and, dimension of causality. Right, yeah. and and that's that's why I wanted to bring up Lacanti's article here. It's that we have another kind of realism. I mean, it, it's the kind Lewis was talking about, but it's a nice concrete example that in talking about dragons, for Tolkien, he was not talking about a mythical beast. Mm -hmm. He was talking about something more, mm -hmm. something bigger, something that is eminently real. Mm -hmm. And the moral lesson, dragons can only be defeated by brave men, usually alone. That's something I'd like to reflect on a little bit. <laughs> that I thought was absolutely chilling and brilliant. What do you think about that? What, particularly the alone part. you have any thoughts on that, Glenn? Well, the analogy Leconte uses is, is kind of interesting. He says that, you know, this is exactly what happened to Britain, Britain and France. France is, they were close allies. The Nazis come along, France surrenders, Britain's left alone. Yeah. That, that, was, that was where Leconte went. But I, th I think that ultimately... It's funny that Leconte would say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, think that, I think that ultimately, um, on one level, I, I think it's absolutely correct in the sense that every one of us has to face evil. Yes, we alone. Have, alone. Yeah. 
And every one of us as individuals, as people, we come face to face with our own dragons, usually yes. inside of us, yeah, and yeah. sometimes outside. And, and we have to fight it. There's no way anybody can help us with that. Right. And right. not to be Heideggerian, but, <laughs> but you've got to pull Heidegger out once in a while. Death. I mean, death is something no matter what. You're, you are going to confront alone, even if you have people surrounded and, of course, God being there. But, but in, in, you talk about the, the full consequence of what evil has done. Um, and, and there is a place at which, I mean, of course, we see, we, we see confronting that and the boldness of faith in, in, in our trust in Christ. I mean, these kind of, there's a heroic dimension there, faith, right? Um, but, but you have this notion that, that uh, suffering, too, is something no matter, even if you're doing that along with other people, you are encountering that suffering within the full, robust aloneness yeah. of how it impacts you particularly. So there is a sense in which just the confrontation of evil and the suffering evil things in the world places this kind of isolation there. So again, you can have, you know, think of Job. Yeah. Like Job is a brilliant example yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. And of course you talk about another story in which you have beasts and dragons, right? Right, right. Um, but you have someone who his friends are trying to comfort him. The theologians are trying to comfort him. Nothing comforts him. Right. And, and what's really important there is that if you need comfort, don't go to a theologian. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Definitely don't call. <laughs> um, but interestingly, um, when he turns to God, it's, it's also a very profound, profound moment mm -hmm. because when he when he starts to bring is is you know he starts to bring the theologian's case before god in a sense and he starts to wonder wait a minute is this the case i mean god's reply is very it's that you know god is all right you want to be a man get up and be a man it's that kind of talk right where were you when the earth's foundations were right, laid right, right um so there there is i mean you talk about what it takes to be someone to stand up and confront that yeah. Um, I'm, I'm talking at kind of one example of it, and that isn't directly what's going on here, but, but I think you think of all these places at which this moment of you have to confront these things um, at the very core of your being right. um, without something else being able to come close apart from, from the reality of, of God. When we think about you know, theological virtues and then you know, sort of the classical virtues, courage, for yeah. example, yeah. is what is part of this, you know, part of this whole matter mm -hmm. of confronting dragons, but also faith, mm -hmm. you know, right. is part of this because, you know, there's a, uh, you, you can you can encounter the dragon in a despairing way, kind of the Norse idea, you know, laughing I will die, yeah, <laughs> kind, yeah. Of, kind of fatalistic, mm -hmm. yeah. but at least I'll have my self-respect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> the other yeah. is... I, I, see, I was just reminded <laughs> of a line from... Um, uh, an old fantasy movie called Lady Hawk, I don't where know it. Matthew Broderick plays uh, <laughs> Philippe the Mouse, a, a, a thief who escapes from prison. Okay, and the, that triggers the whole rest of the story. But at one point, he says, "My cellmate was a murderer and insane, but at least he respected me." <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, self-respect is just that. You know, yeah. I'm insane and I respect myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but. Uh, but this idea that, you know, I think Kierkegaard was getting at with the Knight of Faith. Yeah. You know, you, have, you remember the yeah. you know, either or, the Knight of Infinite Resignation, yeah. which is what we're talking about here, that sort yeah. of laughing I will die. Yeah. But the Knight of Faith uh, is able to go into this, this you know, overwhelming uh, encounter 
mm. with the dragon. You think about it, you know, when you see the dragon portrayed in, mm. in any art, yeah. it's just this implacable evil but impossible to overcome, and then you have this frail man Yes, he's got his armor on, but you know that we're talking about an, a, a guy who is just overwhelmed, you know, sort of outmatched yeah. by the opposition. But he, but he goes into the battle anyway, you know. And uh, now, and it, and with, you know, as I think about this, it's usually there's some insight, you know, when we think about as it barred the bowman and the hobbit, mm -hmm. or we think about we have to, what's the one with the scarab um, fights the spider. Oh, in in uh, yeah. Lord of the Rings. Yes. Well, that, yeah, well, that, that's the, the that's uh, yeah, Shelob. Shelob and right. the and Fro uh, Frodo and the light. Not, no, and Frodo and uh, Samwise. Sam. Sam. That's right. With Sam. With with the the file of Galadriel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But but in these situations, you have these you know mismatches, yeah. and it's usually some weakness that the dragon is unaware of mm -hmm. that he that he has. You remember remember in the in the Hobbit. You know, Bilbo sees the, the the chink in the armor, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You know that that one scale that's missing, mm -hmm. right at the heart, in the underbelly of the dragon, and then you know it, the the word gets to Bard the Bowman that that's where he should aim. But it's that that insight. But that's a whole fascinating thing to consider. But the aloneness, that's the thing that mm -hmm. I think perhaps is something that really is at the heart of Protestantism? Well, look, look, think the, the, the place where I think you see it in spades... No Russian? No. All right, thanks. thanks. I th the place where you see it in spades is when Bilbo, is, in The Hobbit, is going into the Lonely Mountain. Yes. And at one point it says, that, you know, he's... Think about the Lonely he, Mountain. He, he, yeah, and he's on his way in, he's alone. And he is confronted with the fact that he is about to see an enormous dragon and everything else. And he knows the dragon is there. And it's, it says something to the effect of the, the, the next step he took was the hardest step, he, the hardest thing he ever did, the most courageous thing he ever did. Everything else was secondary. It was, it was an aftermath. It was this step of yeah. going in and confronting this. Right, right. You know, but it's done alone. You know, when, I, when I think about my own past, my own hit, my own history, there were there were those moments where I had the challenge, and there was no place to hide, and I could either act or not. You know, and if I didn't act, no one would have been any the wiser. Yeah. And it's those defining moments. That then you have, you know, the, I think the, the the classic, you know, central Christian. Um, emphasis on on Gethsemane and the cross. Sure, right. I mean, here you are. Here you have the the you know the very Son of God carrying uh, the weight of the world on his uh, literally on his shoulders and carrying the sin and judgment. And you talk about this kind of aloneness. And the disciples, of course, are close by, but they keep falling asleep. There's rebuke going on. You know, they they're not going to be able to be there with him through this. This is his what he calls his his time, his time of trial. Um, and yet there, there is something analogous, I think, in all of uh, our episodes of, of confrontation with evil that has this kind of, this dimension to it. And I think that's what he, he may be uh, referencing there. Yeah, that Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, sure. the 40 days in the desert. Yeah. Right. So there's no place for the hero to hide. <laughs> you can't hide it even in your duty. It's just sort of like, there you are, this is the moment. 
uh, and will you, you know, the term stand and deliver, you know, will you be able to do that? Um, and and what are you what are you drawing on to do that? I mean, how, how is it possible? I mean, that's a whole other kind of thing right. to think about. Yeah, An- another sort of interesting direction to think about is again the privative nature of evil mm-hmm. and the dragon. Mm-hmm. The dragon loves beautiful things. Right. Right. That is in itself not a bad thing. Yeah. However, how the dragon loves them is the problem. Right. right. That he, he loves them with an obsessive possessiveness so that one item removed from a vast horde is enough to drive him crazy. That's right. He notices. Uh, and, and, yeah. And along with that, how does he get it? He gets it by slaughtering the dwarves. Right. Um, you know, the wickedness, the cruelty, all of these things that are associated with dragons, sooner or later get tied up to their horde. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the love of beauty is twisted into evil. And that, that's very, very much a, an Augustinian kind of idea. Yeah, yeah. right. This is rich stuff. And how would you get that in realist literature? Yeah, and that, that, that's exactly the point. All of yeah. these things, I would argue, are profound ultimately very real issues mm-hmm. yeah. but there, we get to them through metaphor through analogy um, right. and in the guise of, of um, heroic tale. fantasy yeah right well we, well we ought to wrap up at this point because we've gone about as long as we normally go <laughs> <laughs> so Tom is there anything you want to add as we as we conclude uh, I mean nothing, nothing that uh, wouldn't take a whole nother show to get into so uh, but yeah fascinating stuff and I, I really think it's rich with um, with material here, um, right. I think we can go a long way with it. Great. Yeah. Topic. Anything you want to say as we conclude, Glenn? There is so much stuff, particularly in Lewis's review, that we could again do yeah, multiple yeah. episodes on it. It's. Um, I I think that the biggest problem that we face with fantasy is the cheapening of it. Yeah. Um, interesting. Cheap, right. Right. And the cheapening of it occurs two ways: fantasy fans who don't really get it and yeah. turn it into. Um, an adventure story, swords and sorcery kind of thing, which is fun in and of itself, but it has no, there, there's right. no real depth to it right. uh, on the one hand, but also the cheapening of it are people who do not really, I don't think, get the, um, the metaphor, the analogy, the, the realism that's intrinsic in fantasy. Yeah, yeah those are great points. What's, what's the, uh, the where, where can people go to get that review by Lewis? Uh, I will see to it that when we post the episode, it gets posted. Okay, it. so it'll be it'll be there. Anyway, I don't have anything to add. I I, I mean, if I added anything, I'd just go rambling on. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we appreciate your your interest and support it uh, when it comes to the theology podcast. By the way, we know that we have people who support us on a regular basis basis financially, and if it, you would like to. Uh, do that. It's certainly appreciated. There are some costs with the show. We don't pull a salary or anything. This is all something we're doing for fun. But uh, apart from the fun, I mean, there are some costs. And uh, beyond you, just the beers. That's right. That's, <laughs> that's right. right. That's right. And we and we appreciate we we appreciate anyone who gives uh, to the show uh, to help us offset those costs. If you want to do that, you can go. To cross politic, and I believe that there is a, a way that you can you can uh, pledge uh, to cross politic and name the theology podcast as the the beneficiary of your of your pledge, and 
And if you want to do that, we appreciate that. Another thing is that we've had a number of, of really great reviews on iTunes recently. And uh, if you want to add to that uh, list of reviews, uh, we, we uh, would be very grateful. Uh, everything we're told, and by the way, we are as about as illiterate uh, when it comes to you know, technology as you could possibly be. Uh, we just kind of make this up as we go along and trust other people to take care of the details for us. Uh, but we've been told, anyway, that... We're, we're not part of the technocracy. <laughs> that's right, that's right. We've been told that the reviews help people find us. In fact, you just posted something. You sent me something the other day that said that... Uh, you had uh, told somebody about the show and they responded. We've already heard of it. This is yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. that's just marvelous. We, yeah. we're well, glad. You know, I ran into somebody at Elizabeth's Church in South Bend who listens to our podcast. Wow, nice. wow. See, so. it just blows our minds. We're, we're a bunch of people who live in our closets and don't ever get out. Yeah. <laughs> and, we, and we're just amazed that people care about our show and actually listen. So thank you very much for listening to the Theology Podcast, and, and we hope that it's been a help to you. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye now.